The desire of Titus Women is to invite women around the world to know Jesus as their Savior, Center, and Source. May God guide and encourage you through this message. Good evening, ladies. I feel like this is kind of graduation night, isn't it? Seeing what the Lord is going to do in each of our lives. Um, it's a joy to be able to share with you tonight. Uh, just as we read in Ephesians 4, the gifts that Christ gave the church are apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers. And Christ has put um, the Titus Council together with each of the ladies having different strengths. Mine is not really teaching, so I'm going to share with you this evening by reading you a story. I think for a lot of us, no one has had anyone read to them for a long time. We're the ones who read um, to our children, grandchildren, etc. But not always do we have someone reading to us. As you and I are traveling through the time on earth, the word of God becomes more and more and more precious. It's truly life-giving and has so many things to teach us as we go through life. Don't we all love it when a passage we may be very familiar with teaches us something new? That's the work of the Holy Spirit. I love the passage in Acts 2, as the Lord sends the Holy Spirit and is the fulfillment of the promise Jesus gave when he was on earth. I want to share with you a story about an immigrant couple who came to the United States back in the 1920s. It's a true story. And so um, I prefer to call it, it's an account of lives um, or just a portion of their lives. Their names are Martin and Johanna and they were from the Netherlands. Now Martin came to the States in 1924 with his widowed mother and three younger siblings. He was 21, his brother was 17 and his two sisters were 19 and 18. It was quite an adventure. His father died during the Spanish flu epidemic and here his mom was left with four children, all born within five years. Johanna came to the States when she was a teenager when her father sent for her. Johanna's mother had passed away when Johanna was 14 and her father then left for a new life in the United States. When he was established, he sent for her and she arrived when she was 17. They both ended up in the same town, Martin and Johanna. They obtained jobs and in the evening would go to night school to learn English and then to study for citizenship. They both had different teachers who happened to be sisters and they talked about their students and then they discovered that they each had a student from the Netherlands. So what did they do? They introduced these two students to each other and a friendship and then a romance soon developed. They were married on April 24th, 1929. Yes, two months later, the stock market crashed. And so started what is now known as the Great Depression. Johanna was 19 and Martin was 26. Can you imagine what it must have been like to be newly wedded, dreams abounding, and then whammo, deep financial problems. Plus, Johanna told me she then found out she was pregnant. They made it through the depression, having a daughter 11 months after they were married, and then another daughter six years later. Times were tough. Johanna had grown up in a Christian family. Um, just a little note, her father always had a picture of Jesus on his bedstand. Martin, on the other hand, had been raised Mennonite, and when he came to the States, he really didn't want anything to do with religion. 
Now, ladies, if we are married, we become women of prayer. How many times have we had to bring issues and problems before the Lord? If you are like me, I consciously look to the scripture to read praises to Jesus before I pray the needs of those around me, our church, and of course, our country and the world. I have no doubt after knowing Johanna, she was a woman of prayer. Martin was a very artistic person. He had a natural sense of color, dementia, and had a wealth of knowledge about flowers. When he arrived in the United States, he obtained what was then a gardening job and worked on a large estate. In fact, the estate was sold three times in about 20 years, and the bonus was it came with Martin. Sometime in the early 1940s, when the third couple purchased the property, Martin and Johanna were asked to move into the apartment over the garage. Martin and Johanna were uh, in the apartment over the garage, so they did so with two young girls. It should be noticed that after they moved into the apartment, they were blessed with another baby girl. The apartment was designed as chauffeur's quarters. These estates in the area all had quarters for a chauffeur. Uh, remember the movie Driving Miss Daisy um, and uh, how that relationship developed and uh, the, the chauffeur was a good friend to the state owner as she aged. In the 1950s, their youngest daughter observed her mother doing something once a month and every Sunday. You see, the apartment came with a lot of benefits, no rent, utilities paid except for the telephone and the heat. The children could swim anytime the swimming pool was free and it was free most of the time. They could play tennis on the tennis court whenever they wanted. And there was also a, a backboard on it so they could practice um, and then play at school and hold up their own. Now, remember, this was the mid 1950s. Swimming pools were not common. Martin was paid $160 per month. The couple would always cash the monthly check and pay everything with cash. Johanna faithfully took $16 and set it aside in the dresser drawer. And each Sunday would take out $4 and put it in the church offering envelope. That was the tithe set aside and faithfully given each week. Even the youngest daughter who was about 10 at the time figured that was a meager amount to give to the Lord, but she didn't know it was the tithe of the monthly income broken down into four Sundays and given to the Lord. As she watched Johanna faithfully take the money set aside, of course, the Lord saw it too. He knew her heart. It was given with love of the Lord and with um, respect. Would she like to have given more? Of course, but she and Martin had to live very frugally. When there was more month, then money, there would be waffles for dinner. That youngest daughter thought it was a real treat, not knowing it was because there was no more cash to buy groceries for a couple of days. The children always had the new Easter dresses and always a good pair of shoes that Martin faithfully polished each week. Johanna would always say that she really didn't need one. Her Sunday best would do just fine. The relationship between Martin and Johanna at times could be oil and water as they disagreed on something and the whole household knew. But Johanna was a woman of prayer and prayed for many years. Through those years, Martin became acquainted with the people and the pastor. And in the early 1950s, Pastor McCullough led Martin to the Lord. Johanna was thinking about their future too. Oh, should they buy a house and rent it out 
So when they retired, they would have a roof over their head. However, they could never save enough money to have a down payment plus reserves for household and family emergencies. She wanted a house that was walking distance to the grocery store and to the church. She would always check the newspaper to see what was available. Well, the time came when it was time to retire. Aunt Martin had had a heart attack about eight years before and keeping up with a four and a half acre estate more was becoming more and more difficult. Then the owners of the state had passed away and it was going to be sold. And no, Martin would not work for anyone else. Martin and Johanna were then advised by the adult children of the state owners that a fund had been set up for them so there would always be a pension to be added to their social security and their rent for an apartment would always be paid. The Lord saw the need and provided. No, they were never able to buy a house, but the Lord provided. The neighborhood around the church had declined. The grocery store and walking distance had closed, but the Lord took care of them. It wasn't long that the church was in decline and some friends invited them to their church, the first church of the Nazarene. They loved it. Johanna told me that they liked to get to church early on Sundays. Martin would talk with the pastor and Johanna would go to the altar to pray. And through the last 12 years of their 52-year marriage, Martin and Johanna were the best of friends. Oh, yes, they still disagreed on issues that would come up, but their discussions were not with anger and they continued to tithe. Of course, it was more than the $4 a week by now, but the habit was strong and the love of the Lord even longer. And so the Lord continued to provide for Johanna and Martin. Um, and when Martin went to Jesus, they were able to have saved enough money that when Johanna went into assistant living, the monthly charges were always covered by social security and the interest earned on the savings account because it was a time when interest was very high. Who would have known? I can't help but remember the $16 a month in the 1950s being set aside to give to the Lord. Not much compared to what others could give, but the Lord knew the heart. They were not able to buy a home. However, they were always provided for many times in unexpected ways. But let's not be surprised. Jesus is very creative. There are two verses I want to share with you about our tithe and our heart. One tenth of the produce of the land, whether grain from the fields or fruit from the trees, belongs to the Lord and must be set apart to him as holy. That's in Leviticus 27.30. That tells us that our tithe is holy. It doesn't tell us that it has to be a certain monetary amount. It tells us one-tenth of whatever is received through our labor that belongs to the Lord, period. But another part of giving our tithe has to do with the heart. Jesus criticized the religious leaders in Luke eleven forty two 42 by telling them, what sorrow awaits you Pharisees? For you are careful to tithe even the tiniest income from your herb gardens, but you ignore justice and the love of God. You should tithe, yes, but do not neglect the more important things. Now, as I look back to the time of growing up, I will never forget four $1 bills going into the church envelope every Sunday. You see, I'm sorry, Martin and Johanna were my parents. What an example.
I want to tell you the rest of Marina's story, the rest of her mother's story. I don't think there would be a Titus women's ministry without Marina. Her leadership and her support of Titus women has made this Bible study possible, all the podcasts possible for, for a decade. And I want to tell you that little did that mother know when she tucked her $4 in the dresser drawer that we would be here tonight because of her daughter who was watching, her daughter, her 10-year-old daughter who was watching and then said, well, if you love Jesus, that's what you do. You set aside. And ladies, we are here tonight because of that. And do you know what I think that is the spirit-filled life? faithfulness in those little choices that just say my life, my money, my time, my energy belongs to Jesus. And I'm just going to tuck this away for him. And maybe it will be in my lifetime, or maybe it will be in the lifetime of my daughter that the fruit will be reaped from that. But ladies, we are all the beneficiaries of, of Marina Layton's mother's gifts to the Lord. As we are filled with the spirit of Jesus, I think two things happen. One is that he begins to grow our souls, right? We, we begin to see from a bigger perspective. We begin to, but also he helps us be faithful in the little things because sometimes we can see the big things, but the faithfulness in the little things is harder. And that's what I think he's called that. Those are the two things I think of the spirit filled life. Yes, we see all that God wants to do. And yes, we have the freedom to set our own interests aside so that we can give to the Lord Jesus in every area, not just our finances, but in every area. I love Marina's testimony. I love that testimony of a daughter watching in. And as I, Marina shared this as with our team last week, and as I was thinking, I thought, wonder what my kids have seen. And am I as a mother faithfully, faithfully setting aside time, energy, prayer um, for Jesus? Because the, the world, there are those who are watching and that will bear fruit. I want us to share a little bit tonight about not only how do we allow the Holy Spirit to um, make us large of heart, but how do we allow the Holy Spirit to help us live in peace with one another? If you look in the New Testament, you find over and over and over again, he is our reconciliation and our fellowship, and he draws people together. And there's this sense of what does it mean to walk in unity with one another? And I want us to look at Colossians 3 to start. Colossians 3 starts with this. If you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things that are above, not on things that are on earth, for you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, you will also appear with him in glory. As I was reading this, I thought, um, okay, this is all in chapter two, this Colossians three is kind of in baptism language. There's the sense of going down, right? Going down, taking off the old, the old garments and putting on the new garments of the Christ Jesus. So as you think about this, think about it's all kind of in baptism language, but this idea of being raised baptism language. So we have been, we have, we've been raised with Christ Jesus. And as I was reading this and thinking about what this means in, in, in terms of living in unity, I thought, if we've been raised with Christ Jesus, it means we've died with Christ Jesus. And I think the number one thing for the spirit-filled life is that we have to at some point say, I die to my own self-will. And we've talked about this in various terms, but there is no generosity of heart and there is no living in unity with others unless we have died to our own self-will. And we've allowed the knife of the cross, is the way my mama talks about it, we've allowed that we've allowed the knife of the Holy Spirit to say, I want that part of your heart, I want that part of your heart. And what it boils down to is self-interest. Am I going to fight? Am I going to live for myself or am I going to open myself up and live for him? If we have been raised with Christ Jesus, all of a sudden there is a freedom and the joy of the spirit filled life 
is possible. That is the supposition. And if you find in your heart tonight, a little like reservations, I'm not sure I want to die to myself. I'm not sure God's going to protect me. I'm not sure. I want to just give this witness. He, God is so much kinder than we are, right? He gives us broader places and more people to love. He opens our hearts. And instead of becoming narrower and smaller and meaner and tougher, there comes a grace to get bigger, to get more beautiful in the sense of more loving, more full of his grace, more full of his Holy Spirit. I remember at different times of my life, I think, oh, the, the beautiful relief of giving your whole self to Jesus. like. I don't have to worry. I don't have to try to figure this out. I don't have to deal with my own anxieties. I don't have to. All I have to do is bring myself to him, fall at his knees and just say, here I am. One big heap. I don't know what else to do. <laughs> and I have that. That is when he says, oh, that's exactly where I need. Are you willing to give me all of yourself? And if you haven't done that tonight in this Bible study, my challenge is you just say, I would like to die to my self-interest and be raised with Christ Jesus. That is, that is the message of this whole chapter. And that is the message of this whole Bible study, that there is a possibility to die to our self-interest and live with Jesus and be hidden with him. So if we've been raised with Christ Jesus, seek the things that are above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things above, not on things that are on earth. You have died. Your old self-interest, it's died. And your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, you will also appear with him in glory. I love this. I think the first thing for living in peace with one another is that our lives are hidden in Christ Jesus. We do not find our identity in one another. We do not find our identity in our personalities and our strengths or our money or our gifts or our brokenness or our woundedness or our pain. We find our identity in the heart of God. We find our identity in Christ Jesus and we're hidden. That means we're safe. That means we're protected in God's heart. So if my safe place in the world is God's heart, and that's where my identity, I think when my identity comes because I live in that relatedness and my old self is, has died. So all I have to do is receive his life into me and live out to be the cricket that he wants me to be. He, through his Holy Spirit, there comes a beautiful freedom to love another person, to love other people. And all of a sudden, instead of having to have our dukes up and defend ourselves and protect ourselves and criticize other people and complain, all of a sudden there's a freedom to say, well, Jesus, if you have me here, you must have a reason and I'm going to trust you and I'm going to ask for your joy. I was talking to my mama a while ago and she said, Cricket, I remember the day when Jesus gave me this verse from John, my joy, no one can take from you. And I've been saying that to myself kind of over and over. If he gives me his joy, nobody can take it. No circumstance, no grumpy person, no crazy child, nothing. No, if God gives, if God says, Cricket, my joy is yours. It is mine. And, uh, and it, that, is, that is becomes part of my identity. When our life is hidden with Christ Jesus, I've just been thinking about that. I'm hidden with you. That creates the platform of life for how we relate to the whole rest of the world. This is, the, this is where we talked about the knife of the cross um, from Jesse Penn Lewis. And I, I do love this, the practicality of this. He says, pray the Lord to keep the knife of the cross applied to every part of your being, your cleverness of intellect, your self-confidence, your sympathies, your affections. Let the knife be used by God all the time, not yesterday, but today. This means keeping the material which the enemy can fasten upon out of his way. The bulletproof place of victory is only to be known through the knife of the cross being kept continually applied to the old creation day by day. I think this is an interesting, as we come and we say, I'm going to, I am hidden with Christ in God. And then every day I come into his presence and I open up my soul, right? That's kind of what our devotion time is for. I open up my soul and say, Jesus, is there anything in me that you need to talk to my heart about? And it's a little bit like keeping short accounts with your husband, like, uh, is there, there things seem to be a little tense. Do we need to talk something out or something's happening and we haven't really had time to connect. It's keeping short accounts with Jesus, staying hidden in him. If we don't do that, 
then we get a little accustomed and we back away a little bit and become a little more independent. And the, the thing that God wants is us to be radically dependent upon him. Marina said tonight, as we were praying for Bible study, she said, now, Lord, I'm just going to be selfish and say, help me. <laughs> I thought, that's not selfishness. That is a prayer of someone who knows who she is and knows who God is and said, help us, help us, Jesus, help us every minute. We don't have any of this figured out. We need you. And it is okay for us every single day for the rest of our lives to come to him and say, still don't have it figured out. I need you. I need you, Jesus. As we live in that place of openness with him and hiddenness in him, we find our freedom and we find our place of safety so that we can love. And then here's the next thing that Colossians 3 says. Now we can say squeaky clean, be squeaky clean, but put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. In these two, you once walked when you were living in them, but now put them away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, obscene talk from your mouth, and do not lie to one another. I think this is a very, these lists, these two lists are very interesting. And this is what they have to do with our desires and anger, right? How we relate to one another and what causes, what are those triggers? He wants to, he wants to take away all the triggers. So what we're not reacting to pain of our past, we're reacting and responding to the presence of Jesus. But, and then the other thing he wants to do is he wants to put to death in us anything, any desire that is not of him. Now, you know, the latest thing in kind of our woman Christian culture is what do you want? What do you want? What do you want to go for? What do you want to become? What dreams do you have? What fulfillment do you have? That's not, that's not what the New Testament says. There's this sense of, will you die to yourself and allow me to put my life in you? Will you give me your desires and let me give you my desires? I think it's very interesting that at first he deals with desires and do I want anything that doesn't belong to me? Um, more money, a different family, a different background, more education. Do I want anything or am I content with the story that he's given to you. Remember at the very first week, we talked about that contentment in our own story and allowing the creative Holy Spirit of God to rewrite our story without comparing to any other woman. I, I love this because he wants to deal with our desires and then he wants to deal with our, the way we express ourselves. And uh, I, I've been, I've been loving this because I've been, uh, since the outpouring at Asbury, I've been um, re-listening to the Narnia stories. And uh, I was reading Prince Caspian and, um, and you, my favorite part of Prince Caspian is the four, the four children are, are back in Narnia and they're with a dwarf and they're trying to get to Caspian and the battle and they haven't met Aslan yet. And so they're trying to find the way to where the battle is taking place. And Lucy thinks she sees Aslan in the distance telling them to come a certain way. And so she tells everybody, hey, listen, um, we've got to follow Aslan and they, they can't see him. And so they don't follow. So they go a different way. The whole day is spent in, in frustration. The end of the night, they're back in the same place and they all go to sleep. They're all frustrated. It had been a wasted day. And uh, Lucy goes to sleep. And in the middle of the night, it says um, she heard a voice, her favorite voice in the world. She heard him calling her name. So she gets up and she goes to a grove of trees and there is Aslan and he's waiting for her. So, so they meet together and she says, Aslan, you're bigger. And he said, that is because you're older, little one. Not because you're bigger. I am not. Every year you grow, you will find me bigger. For a time, she was so happy she did not want to speak. But then Aslan spoke. Lucy, he said, we must not hear, lie here long. You have work to do and much time has been lost today. Yes, wasn't it a shame, said Lucy. I saw you all right. But they wouldn't believe me. They're all so, from somewhere deep inside Aslan's body, there came the faintest suggestion of a growl. I'm sorry, said Lucy, who understood some of his moods. I didn't mean to start slamming the others. But it wasn't my fault anyway, was it? The lion looked straight into her eyes. Oh, Aslan, said Lucy, you don't mean it. 
How could I, I couldn't have left the others and come to you. No, don't look at me like that. Oh, well, I suppose I could have. Yes, and it wouldn't have been alone. I know not if I was with you, but what would have been the good? Aslan said nothing. You mean, said Lucy rather faintly, it would have turned out all right somehow. Please, Aslan, am I not to know? To know what would have happened, child, Aslan, said Aslan, nobody is ever told that. But anyone can find out what will happen if you obey. I, as I listened to that, I, this part where all of a sudden he said, she said, he started to growl and she said, I'm sorry, I didn't mean to slam the others. And do you know what? Sometimes as we walk normal course of life and we're in the church and we're talking about what's happening and before we know it, we're slamming the others. Before we know it, there's criticism coming out of our mouths. Before we know it, we're judging others' behaviors. Before we know it, we're saying words that are neither kind nor encouraging nor upbuilding. Before we know it, we're saying words that God does not want us to say. And this is what he talks about. If your life is hidden in Christ and God, you have the freedom to say words that are uplifting, to encouraging, upbuilding, where we don't slam the others. One of the marks of the people of God is going to be when they say, oh, wow, those people love each other so much. They only have good things to say about each other, even if they're all so different. That is one of the things I think God wants us to do. And Oh, I know. I know it's what he wants us to do. Is it but what he's been talking to me very much about? Even the little words we say that are we bringing those words to the Lord Jesus? Are we asking him to guard our lips and to guard our mouths? And as soon as a word comes out of our mouth that shouldn't, are we backing up and saying, Jesus, I'm sorry, help me with my words for every single one of us. That should be a daily prayer. Help me with my words, protect me with my words, because once the words are spoken, they cannot be unspoken. Later in the story, um, he tells her that he, she has to go wake up the others and they're all going to need to follow him and uh, they're not going to be able to see him. So she, Lucy's the only one who can see Evelyn. So she goes and wakes the others and they are grumpy, grumpy, grumpy with her. And, uh, but they are following along. And she can see Aslan and she can hear the voices behind her. And it says she's thinking of all the things she wishes she can say to her sister, but she's trying not to say them out loud. And then listen to this line. But she forgot them when she fixed her eyes on Aslan. And I think that is she forgot all they were behind her criticizing, criticizing, complaining and grumpy. And she wanted to respond. But as she fixed her eyes on Aslan. She forgot all the others that was happening. That is what it means to have a life that is hidden with Christ in God. I have fixed, I've given him the words of my mouth. And then I have fixed my eyes on him. And regardless of the chatter around me, I am saying, okay, I'm going to fix my eyes on you. And I have found in my own life that when I begin to get my eyes off my circumstances and off the people around me, and I say, okay, Jesus, what do you have to say to me? Okay, Jesus, that it's way far easier to guard what we say, to guard what we think, and just to keep our, our feet moving, right, in the right direction, going forward, following him and loving him. We're hidden with Christ. We have a squeaky clean heart. And then this is the, the next one from Colossians 10. Christ is all and in all. You have put off the old self with its practices and put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Here, there is no Jew or Greek, circumcised, uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave or free. Christ is all and in all. I think that that phrase, Christ is all and in all, is also one like hidden in Christ for us to meditate on. What does it mean for Christ to be all and in all? Now, Jew, Greek, circumcised, and th these categories in this passage in, in Colossians 3, 10, um, they're the, they were the divisions of the world in that day, right? They were the divisions, the racial divisions, the political divisions, all the divisions were there, the socioeconomic divisions. And, and, and Paul says, those don't matter. Jesus is all and he's in all. So as we, as we respond to those around us, we're hidden in Christ Jesus. We have a clean heart. We're listening to his voice. And then as we look out at other people, 
we see Jesus in them. We see Jesus as, as the one over all, right? And all of a sudden it changes our perspective. Now think of the people you disagree with. Think about the people that have caused angst in your own soul. And as we begin to say, Jesus, would you give me your perspective? Would you give me your heart? Now I want to talk about, this is practical. I am not a, I, I am not a professional here. This is for my own walk with Jesus. I think there are four types of common conflict in interpersonal relationships, or at least four. One, it comes from personality. Just we're different, right? God made us different. And so some people rub us the wrong way. Some people we just perfectly connect with, and some people we don't. They're personality conflicts. The second is their hurts, genuine hurts, whether they've been intentional or unintentional. Hurts have come to us, and they've kind of lodged in our soul. And when I, we go to relate to that person, um, often it's with conflict. Conflict comes because of tragedy, pressure, extended weariness, or illness. If we have lived in a pressure cooker for a long time, we start to get snippy. We start to, our responses aren't super good. We're tired. Our tone of voice is tired. And the tension is much easier when we're tired, when we're weary, when we're in long-term care situations or long-term disappointments. And then the next area, and we see this so much, is ideological differences. And those can be based, based on people of different faiths, um, people of different political understandings, backgrounds, or socioeconomic levels. We see the world from a different paradigm, right? Totally different. Now, these are some practical tools Jesus has given to me. And I think this is fun. This has been fun. This is when, as I've, <laughs> you can ask my siblings, um, of the four of us, I'm always like, well, let's just fight this out and get it over with, right? So my sisters have a much calmer approach to, to interpersonal relationships. So they, they will tell you that these are hard-won battles for me. But personality conflicts, here's what has been so fun to me. If you find a person that you're just constantly struggling to understand, learn about them. Ask Jesus to love you through them, but learn about them. This is where personality tests or the Enneagram or things that are just practical tools. Who is this person that Jesus made? They have been so helpful for me. I remember when I thought I have the craziest kids in the whole world. We're going to, I'm going to give them all personality tests. I want to be able to understand how they see the world. It was one of the most helpful and freeing things I had ever done. I knew I loved them, but I knew that we couldn't actually have conversations where we were actually communicating. I have loved this. And the more I've gotten to know about different people, their strengths or their weaknesses, I thought, oh, that's how they show up. And here's something fun about the spirit-filled life. It doesn't really matter what our love language is. If we can see the other person is communicating love, then the Holy Spirit is the one who says, I can translate that into your language. They don't have to speak your perfect love language. I can translate it. You can look at that person and say, oh, they're loving me in practical ways. Okay, I, it doesn't have to be my way. They're loving and I receive it as love. I remember when I was taking care of my grandfather and someone would always come and help me. And it was always to do super practical things like buy me new dishcloths or something like that. And I remember thinking, okay, that's not what I need. Well, I'm, I'm sure I did need to do dish claws, but that wasn't exactly what I was thinking. Um, but as, as I, I, I wanted to be frustrated and then Jesus said, no, cricket, that is the way she shows love, receive it as love. And when I began to do it, all of a sudden it brought the sweetness, the sweetest, tenderest relationship between the two of us. And do you know what also happened? All of a sudden, Jesus said, she can see needs you can't even see. And she's meeting needs you don't, you're not even aware of. And um, all of a sudden, what was flooded in my heart was just love. When we have conflict out of hurt, this is where I think what we were talking about with Fiona, bring your pain to Jesus. We don't want to be spirit-filled women. We don't want to be women who are living in reaction to hurts that have come to us. There is healing in the blood of Jesus. As we bring him our hurts, and they can be small hurts. They don't have to be massive hurts. I remember bringing pains to Jesus earlier in my life, and I thought, well, compared to other people's hurts, this is not the most serious. And he said, it doesn't, it does not matter, right? Bring your hurts to Jesus. Put it under the blood of Jesus. Sometimes this one requires a buddy. It requires a prayer partner. 
Sometimes it requires a counselor. It requires someone to walk you through it almost always. We're not made to do this alone. And there's healing grace in one another's love. So let's, and then, and then Jesus begins to seal up the hurts of our past. I remember this has happened to me really dramatically twice in my life. One was a pain that kept going over and over and over and over in my mind. And all of a sudden I said, Jesus, I can't take it anymore. And he said, neither can I, I'm going to zip that one right up. And he did. And it has never been opened again. I think sometimes there are scars that are left, but the wound is healed. And that's true. And I think those scars somehow add a beauty to our story that, that, is, that we wouldn't trade. Then the other thing, then the other one happened just recently during the revival. There was a pain that kept surfacing, kept surfacing. I was sitting in the presence of Jesus. I was praying with so many people and I had my own personal hurt that kept surfacing over and over and over again. And Jesus, I brought it to Jesus and he said, here's what I want you to do. I want you to reach out in love to this person in this way. It's very specific. This is what I want you to do. And so I said, okay. And so I, I, I did it. And then I tried to take it back because I got nervous. It was one where I knew hurt could come again. And so I... But then I just, I obeyed and it wasn't for her. It was to seal up that hurt. And as soon as I obeyed and did what God asked me to do, it was like he zipped it up and said, that one's over. You can throw it away, throw the key away. That wound is healed. Jesus wants to heal our past hurts so that we're not living in conflict with other people. We're living in, we are free. And the hurt that they have inflicted upon us does not control our lives. There is a freedom and that freedom comes from the Lord Jesus. The next one is conflict from tragedy or pressure or extended. And I think people who are in caregiving situations, people who are, have children who are away from the Lord and it's very painful, people who are in difficult marriages where it's long-term stress. I think this is where we have to ask Jesus to make us creative. Like Jesus, you know what, you know how I'm going to be able to hold steady. So what friendships do I need? What outside opportunities do I need? I remember when I started caregiving for my grandfather and I was really stuck at home a lot. And it was so sweet because that same year, my daughter started really doing poorly in, in school and we had to pull her out and homeschool her. And she became like the sunshine of our lives, right? Like Papa and I, and the three of us together, but her sweetness in our, in our home, as I learned how to be a caregiver was the happiest thing. It was like, Jesus said, I know what you need in order to survive. You need your daughter. <laughs> and he provided, I think we just have to get creative. And then if we're in a situation, I think this is the mark of the spirit filled life. If we're in a situation where we have to care for someone or live with pain, learn to enjoy the people God has given you. I think the number one way we can show love to others is to enjoy them. I love who you are. I love how God made you. I'm not trying to convert you or I'm, I'm, I'm just trying to love you and enjoy you. I want you to know that I enjoy you. I think everybody wants to be enjoyed. Everybody. So whatever, however someone's played into our life, I think that's the number one mark of the spirit is a, I can enjoy this person and I'm free to enjoy this person. And that I think is a key also for when we have conflict with people with ideological or political differences. I have found in my own life that the less words spoken, usually better. And I'll tell you why. When we're in two different paradigms, um, when we're in two different paradigms, talking doesn't connect, only loving. Only loving tears down walls. We can talk at each other, talk at each other, but it's like we're into steel bubbles and we will just bounce off, bounce off, bounce off, bounce off, bounce off. And that's why there's the cross, right? Only loving will take down the barriers. So we just say, okay, there's one in my life. I don't agree with that one on anything. How do I show love? How do I put their welfare above my own? How can I creatively love them? And we have to ask Jesus, because sometimes we have ulterior motives. I want to creatively love them so they see the world from my perspective. And Jesus says, that's my business. Your business is just to love. And I do know, and I'm finding in my own life, um, that Jesus can do this. In fact, one, one person in my family who 
further out extended family who I had I, strong, strong differences. And I got a text and um, the way she referred to me was as loving and as tender as it could be. And I knew it was the love of Jesus. It wasn't because I convinced her. Nope, nope, nope. But it was because she sensed the love of Jesus. And that's what I think when we're filled with the Holy Spirit, as we just say, Jesus, how do I love this one? How do I enjoy this one? Even this one who is so different from me, who sees the world so differently. How do I enjoy them? How do I love them? And then how do I pray for them in secret? Remember, we have that hidden life in Jesus. So then we go and say, okay, Jesus, what do I do? Jesus, how do I love? Jesus, hold me steady. Jesus, I'm losing my way. And then we, we, sometimes we have to spend more time in that hidden place with Jesus to give us the courage then to love, to love well. But that's what I think the spirit filled life is. And then he says to us, um, he goes on in Colossians, put on love, put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved compassion, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bear one another in love. Forgive one another as the Lord has forgiven you. And above all, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. That's kind of, that's kind of what we're talking about. I, I love the way this one starts as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved. When we're hidden in him, that's who we are, right? Where our identity is holy and beloved. Put on compassion. The word compassion is actually bowels of mercy. It's the Greek. It's not very attractive sounding, but bowels of mercy. And it is only used for God. It is a God word. He has bowels of mercy for us, overwhelming mercy for us. So the challenge here is to put on the mercy of God for the world. And I think that's what he's calling us to do now. How, when I look at a lost person, when I look at a person who has walked away from the Lord, is my first instinct, the compassionate mercy of God. And that is what I, when he begins to do that for our hearts, and then whatever critique we have or whatever, we just take to the Lord in prayer and say, Jesus, you know what you need to do. The first thing he wants is for there to be this overwhelming compassion of God for the other. That's just come home to me. And so in my prayers, I thought I have empathy, like, oh, you're going through a hard time. I'm sorry about that. But the compassion of God for another is a gift. So I've just been asking him, would you give me that for, for the ones I love the best? But would you also give it to me for the ones that I struggle with the most? Would you give it, would you give me that compassion of God? And then bear with one another in love, forgive one another as the Lord has forgiven you. And I think we have to be willing um, to forgive every day, every day, and not let any of those little, little hurts or little annoyances ever stick. We just got to be like a sieve, right? Where they just kind of all flow out. And we bring, we bring them to Jesus and say, Jesus, that hurt. I give it to you. You keep me clean. You keep me free. Sometimes I do think there's work involved in keeping that, that spirit of forgiveness, but it is the work of the spirit in our lives. And as we come to him on our knees and say, Jesus, help me forgive, help me to live clean. Um, then he gives us freedom to do it. And then the last couple things are do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus. And so as we go about our daily business and we're, we're relating to people and bumping into people, let the peace of God rule in your hearts to which you were called in one body, right? If the peace of God is in me, when we join together as one body, the peace of God is going to connect to someone else and it's going to strengthen. Be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. Fill up our hearts with his word. Teach and admonish one another with wisdom. Sing with thankfulness in your heart to God. So there's the spirit of gratitude. There's the spirit of wisdom, love, his love. And whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of Jesus. I think one of the, I think this also from how do we live in conflict? We without, how do we live in unity with one another? We do everything in the name of Jesus. And then the beautiful thing, if we're really the body of Christ, if my sister's doing everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, and I'm doing everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, there's not only a unity, there is a sweetness and an intimacy, right? Because together we are loving and, and walking in the spirit together. 
And then the last one is the end of this chapter is wives submit to your husbands. Husband loves your wives. Children obey your parents. Fathers don't provoke your children. Slaves obey in everything with real sincerity of heart. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and you will receive in the, the inheritance from him. And in him, there is no partiality. Nobody gets the upper hand in him. What we do in him, we do with all our hearts as unto the Lord. And as I have um, prayed my way, right, through how do we love well? How do we love each other in all different seasons of life? How do we love people who don't see the world like we, we do? This beautiful thing, whatever we do, do everything in his name. Whatever we do, do it with all our hearts. I've been thinking about, and during the revival, this passage kept coming to mind in Timothy, run in such a way as to win the prize. And I've been saying that back to Jesus, not in our performance and not just, but in this spirit-filled life, let him have it all. Let him have all of us so that we can live in this place of freedom and live in this place where his love can flow through us. And you know, Amy Carmichael's song that we talk about so much, love through me, love of God, there is no love in me. Oh, fire of love, light thou the love that burns perpetually. As we come to Jesus, it's not like he does something in me, makes cricket a loving person. No, he fills each one of us with his own Holy Spirit. And then his love begins to flow through us. And we get into situations and we say, okay, Jesus, love through me. I have no idea what to do. And then the creativity and the beauty and the sweetness of God comes through. And that's the challenge, I think, for all of us, right? That the spirit-filled life is not just something so that we're clean on the inside and we have a sweet relationship with Jesus. It is so that the world can know how good he is. So the spirit-filled life is so that we can be women um, with hearts like Jesus, and we can be women who live in in love with other people, in joy, in peace, as much as we are able, in peace with one another. And um, I think that that is where that deep, deep joy comes from.